0: Welcome to the Duet Partner Podcast. I feel like if people can hold hands and play together, that's what we're doing this for. (laughs) You know, we're not doing this. We're not playing music to win a competition. We really, that's not the end purpose of music. The purpose
1: of music is to bring us together. Lori Niles loved playing the violin, attending both Northwestern and Indiana universities to study music. But she also loved to write. She followed two career paths, as a violinist and a journalist, until 1997 when she combined her two loves to start Violinist.com. Since then, Violinist.com has become a gathering place for violinists and music enthusiasts from around the world, with Lori leading a community of passionate musicians through her influential online platform. Lori has had a rich career teaching, performing, writing about music, and creating music communities. And like many of the teachers I interview, Lori got her start in music in another influential community, her public school. I was very fortunate when
0: I was about almost nine years old that my public school uh, had a music program and they came around to all the classrooms. And I saw a little girl play the violin and I thought, oh, I want to do that. Uh, So that's how I got my start in the public schools. Um, And then I was also very lucky that... um, a very fine violin teacher lived down the street. So, um, so you know, I got going there. Um, I grew up in Denver, Colorado, um, and played in lots of youth orchestras there, the Aurora Youth Orchestra, the Denver Young Artists Orchestra. Anyway, um, and then um, went to Northwestern University where I majored in music, um, and then Indiana M- University where I majored in um, journalism, So, um, but I still kept going with music the whole way through. And so, um, you know, and I've continued as a a symphony musician and as a teacher. um, So I've played in a lot of different orchestras, uh, starting with the Omaha Symphony and then the uh, Colorado Springs Symphony. And then as I move west, uh, the Pasadena Symphony more uh, recently um, and did all my Suzuki training uh, when I was in Colorado
1: and, and here I am. Wonderful. So, um, it's very yeah. heartening how often I hear that story of people getting their start in the public school, uh, music class. Um, that's, that's yeah, such a, that's such a heartening, um, part of your story and, and, and one that is, is happily quite, quite frequented. And, and that's great. Um, did you, did you know from an early age that you wanted to pursue music professionally? Was, was teaching always on your radar? Well, um, I think playing was on my radar and writing was on my
0: radar. And and then as I got to the age where I wanted to have kids, the teaching became a part of it. And I feel like at this point, they're all really intertwined. Um, all of my writing is about teaching and um, you know, I feel like a, a lot of my life is really geared toward teaching, um, maybe not just my students, but like through violinist.com, trying to bring the idea of excellence in, in playing and teaching out to a broader community. So, um, but yes, I, um, you know, from a young age, I thought about teaching because I could see um, well, I, I'll just go ahead and tell this story. When I was taking from that teacher w- who was right down the street, he was a professor at the University of Denver um, who had a real pedigree. He'd, he'd studied with Ivan Galamian, a, a great violinist yeah. of the 20th century. And um, his wife, though, was experimenting. She was a pioneer in the Suzuki method. And my, my lessons were upstairs. And there was this window where I could look downstairs on her studio and, you know, I was a little more of an advanced student uh, from she was teaching, you know, little tiny beginning students younger than I was when I started. And she was using puppets and she was singing with them. And I thought, oh, my gosh, why <laughs> were to ever teach children? I want to know. I She knows what she is doing. And so, like, 15 years later, I came back to Denver after, you know, studying in Chicago and everything came back and, and called them up. And she said, Oh, well, you know, uh, this, this is Jim and Jackie Mauer in Denver, Colorado. Oh, well, Jim is teaching Suzuki pedagogy at, at the school. And he was teaching all the things that she was doing. So, you know, between the two of them, um, I feel like they really taught me how to teach. And so I, I studied how to teach. <sighs> That's fantastic
1: so, to have that kind yeah. of that that vision so early on of somebody that you want to be like as a teacher and seeing that impact on young students. That's that's wonderful, and you and it's true you have integrated so many different disciplines: the teaching, the writing, the performing. And tell us about your uh, your move into into journalism. So. It sounds like that was something that you, you said you had an interest in writing early on as well. Did you see that? Uh, Were you able to sort of foresee the future of of how you could integrate those two or did it happen more organically?
0: Yeah, absolutely not. Um, so I really pursued those things very separately from a very young age. So, you know, I was playing violin, but then from about fifth grade on, I kept a diary every single day. Mm -hmm. I wrote and wrote and wrote. I must, I practiced writing a great deal as much as I practiced violin, if not more sometimes I think. Um, and I studied both disciplines, both in undergrad, you know, and, in. um, graduate school. And I never saw the two of them meeting, really. I just thought, well, people said you need to be a music critic. Mm-hmm. And I thought, that sounds like a terrible idea. <laughs> I just i that's the last thing I wanted to do was to be a music critic. So I was actually a newspaper reporter for the Omaha World Herald. You know, I chased fires and wrote about um, the weather and, and wrote about all the, you know, local stories. At the same time, I was in the Omaha Symphony. You know, so yeah. these were completely so- separate career paths until 97 when my husband bought the domain name violinist.com for me for, um, I believe it was for Christmas. (laughs) And, um, and I thought, wow, what is this? I mean, it was before the internet really. I mean, I had no idea what to do with it, but I kind of knew that it would be a journalistic thing. And, um, and so I feel like, um, you know, not only do I write a blog, I got to sort of invent what it was, you know, so early, right. (laughs) When my husband said, you could write a blog. I said, what is a blog? Yeah. (laughs) What what is that? But then what was astonishing to me was to see um, people becoming members of the website from all over the world. I didn't realize a, how many people were interested in the violin and B how many people had deep, deep expertise, like who knew things that I didn't know in a really deep way. And, um, and, you know, this is where I start to see a community emerging, you know, on violinist.com. Um, People coming from all over the world to share their knowledge, um, and you know, it, it was humbling. Actually, I thought I knew a lot about the violin, and I realized, wow, there's a lot of people that know a lot more than I do, and I can, I can learn from that. And I think people really can learn
1: from each other. Yeah. So so, did you promote the growth of violinist.com? Did you advertise it? What were your goals with it when you started it? Or did, it, did people I just kind of really find
0: involved, it? I mean, because my goals back then, you know, the first thing we did was allow people to put their resumes on violinist.com, like mm. Facebook for violinists. Yeah. That was even before we had a discussion board. Then we had a discussion board. And I learned a lot about um, people being nasty online. Oh, <laughs> Even back then, huh? Guiding a discussion, you know. And and then we started the blogs and and there was more articles, you know. They're almost like magazine articles that we have online. Um, And so, you know, the goals have just really changed over time. Yeah. Um, And it's been a labor of love, really, um, from the beginning. The goal, one goal has always remained, which is to get people addicted to the violin. Well. It's and, you know, a the tremendous resource. Goal, yeah, yeah. The overall goal is to hold up examples of excellence, yeah. um, excellence in playing, excellence in teaching, excellence in community, um, excellence in the violin, the instrument itself. Just so that people can go forward with that knowledge and and strive for it in their own studio or in their own playing or when they look for violin, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm.
1: Tell us about the books and how those came about. Those evolved just simply because
0: I had done over the years um, on violinist.com, I did a lot of interviews with violinists um, and violists and cellists, but mostly violinists. (laughs) Um, And I realized that, you know, I had done, I don't know, um, dozens of them. And, you know, by now it's probably several hundred. Um, And so I just um, took the best ones and uh, formatted them into a book and, you know, sort of wrote some introductions and and made them work for for that kind of um, medium of a book. Uh, But so um, that has been an amazing thing. Just an amazing privilege to be able to talk to violinists like Joshua Bell and Hilary Hahn and... um, Philip Quinn. Just, you know, each book has like 27, I think it is, um, interviews. And um, what amazing, uh,
1: what amazing artists. Is there, I mean, I know it's probably impossible. Are there like two or three learnings that you could pull out from that experience? I mean, sort of guiding principles that that were a through line for all of those artists or... Well, probably not a, fr- a through line, but, you know, it, it seems like there was a, a little bit of a different thing that I would
0: learn from each artist. For example, Hilary Hahn has this amazing ability to just always stay herself, you know, everything she's done over the years. She does this thing where she um, she does a 100 days of practice. I know, and my she my posts- daughters are doing that
1: along with her this time around, yes. Oh, my <laughs>
0: gosh. Well, she posts everything onto Instagram, and it's so um, – she makes herself well. It, it, it seems so vulnerable. You know what I mean. Yeah. You know to to do that, and yet she just—it's just wonderful. It's so inspiring. Um, and you know, she's she's taken these various mediums, you know, social media, and she always does something that's entirely herself. You know, mm-hmm. um, and she does things like takes breaks. Um, the very yeah. first time I talked with her, which was probably oh my gosh. 15 years ago, maybe more. She was taking a
1: sabbatical, and then she took another one last year. You and know, it's she literally really- doesn't practice when she does that, right? Isn't that what that right? means for her? Yeah. She doesn't practice and, and doesn't perform? Right. Wow.
0: So it's it's a real it, – that that idea of of rest, recuperation, um, feeding your artistic self, that's amazing. Um, and then there were some really humorous things, too. like I, Sarah Chang talked about um, – about her concert outfits, you know, and this is something that was really important to her. Yeah. And, and she talked about having like a, a little accident where the, the, um, the, she replaced all the buttons with snaps and she started the Mendelssohn and they started coming up. Oh, a wardrobe you know, malfunction. Yes. A wardrobe malfunction. And you don't think of that in classical music, yeah. but it was just the funniest story, you know, and and, and she's such an amazingly poised person, you know, if you, if you wanted to take a snapshot of someone who, um, has the look and just, mm, you know, it, it's just yeah. really funny. Um, yeah. oh, and, um, yeah, there are actually just so many, you know, I'm trying to, to think right now. I talking to Ruggiero Ricci, I had the wonderful privilege of talking to him before he died. Um, he was a child prodigy. And it was so fascinating to talk to this person who was, I think, in his 80s or maybe even 90s about how, you know, they had to pretend that he was still young. And and um, and then when he became just an adult, he had to completely reinvent and prove himself anew. Yeah. Um, and I think that's something that a lot of people can sort of relate to. But, but he had to do it in such a public way. And mm. um, so, yeah, there's just a lot of things. Um that I learned about perseverance and I don't know, yeah. reinvention. I'm and-
1: gonna I'm I'm gonna buy these for my uh, for my girls, for my my musicians. Are they they're are they available in most They're available on Amazon. Okay. If you just
0: uh probably if you Google Lori Niles, they're called okay. violinist.com interviews, and there's two books and they're very family friendly. Great. So um so no scandalous you know, you stories. You're teenagers. <laughs> No, not really. I mean, okay. you know, there's people talk about some serious stuff. Sure. Um, but, you know, one of them was a Chinese woman who grew up during the Cultural Revolution. She, act, she had to hide in her basement to practice. And the only way they got music was when somebody would come from the Soviet Union and copy it by hand. They'd give, you know, they'd say, can we use your music? And they would they would go in the dark, you know, copy it by hand and give it back to them. And so, just some amazing
1: stories, really, of people doing a lot to become violinists, you know? Yeah. Well, I know you've told me that your own studio right now is quite small, but I can't imagine anybody better to talk about this idea of building community than the founder of of violinist.com, because you really are the one who's brought so many violinists together over the years. And so there's so many things that we we could have, we could be talking about today, Laurie. and obviously, you know, you're such a wealth of knowledge. But uh, when we talked previously, we landed on this idea of how to build community instead of competition within a studio. And yeah. I, I love this idea and, and I'm excited to explore this with you. And I have a little story of my own to sort of <laughs> kick us off, okay. um, which, um, you know, it, it, it it's a it's just one of those things that is burned into my memory uh, from those formative middle school years. And I, as I mentioned, I was, a, I was a competitive pianist, and then my beloved piano teacher uh, paired me f- up for several years in a row with another one of her students as a duet team. And um, it was a fantastic experience. I, I'll, I'll call him Carl. His, his name wasn't Carl, but I'll call him Carl. We were a great duet team, and we won practically every competition we entered playing piano duets. Um, It was really fun for me. It was hard for me to perform solo uh, just because of nerves and stuff. So playing duets just totally got rid of all of that. We had a great time. But because Carl and I were similar ages and abilities, he and I also were frequently entered in the same solo competitions and even in the same divisions. And whenever that happened, Carl always beat me. (laughs) Always. (laughs) And I have so many pictures of him holding like the first place trophy and me holding the second place trophy. So despite our success in partnership with duets, I was just seethingly jealous of Carl for a lot of those years. And I remember after one competition, Carl won and I did not. I remember being in the car in the parking lot outside of the competition facility and I was sobbing in my mom's lap And just yelling, I just remember saying, I hate Carl. I hate him so much. I hate Carl. And this was very unusual for me because I just didn't, you know, I didn't hate people. That wasn't particularly my nature. But I just remember that visceral feeling, feeling so strongly about this and feeling so conflicted because as I said, like we were a good duo, you know, and we won a lot and he was a perfectly pleasant guy and he was nice to me. Um, but you know, I and I know that my teacher. Most, I think the the thing that I take away as an adult is that I really admire my teacher for for trying that. Right? She recognized that that there might be some feelings there putting us side to side, and and maybe she shouldn't have put us side to side in every competition as as often as she did. But I really admire her effort to mitigate that through the duet work, right? And by showing us that. There was room for both of us. Um, We could actually strengthen each other, right? Our partnership would lift all boats, Um, and it did. We had a lot of a lot of fun and a lot of success with that. So, (laughs) I'd love to love to hear your response to that. Do you do you think my teacher did the right thing? (laughs) Would you have done anything differently? Teacher was, you know, a piano is kind
0: of unique in a way Mm -hmm. because it's not like you can be an orchestra. Yep. Um, You can be a collaborative ensemble opportunity. Yeah, yeah, and so I think it's kind—it's pretty wonderful that she paired you together to do duets, and um, you know, and to get to know each other in that way, um, you know, so that you had that context for some kind of relationship, you know, and not only just the competitions. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there's the whole competition question. You know, competitions are for horses. Is it Isaac Stern that said that? Of course, there's an Isaac Stern competition now, but um, but they serve a function. And every time I talk to somebody who's won a competition, they they have a function. It, you know, it serves the function of making you work and practice and strive
1: and um,
0: well, you know. Let, and find let's unpack something. that a
1: little bit more. Like that that idea of competitions. I mean, they do have a, a they have a purpose. For an individual student, as you say, they provide a deadline. They provide a goal, motivation to practice. Um, yeah. What are the What are the pros and cons of that? From
0: yeah, from your I point think of view? so much depends on a person's personality. I don't know if competitions are for everyone. Um, you know, for some there for some people, just straight up collaboration and and forming a band or forming a mm. chamber group or you know might. Uh, you know, doing live performances might provide the kind of um, motivation that they need to work on things. Um, and so, I think that's always the that's always the question for a teacher. You know, and I, I I have about twenty students, and they're about like they're ranging in age from five to high school, and um, and uh, many of them are siblings, and I think about that a lot. Um, siblings playing the same instrument, um, and you really need to, as a teacher, I always, I, I really subscribe to the Suzuki idea that you have to meet every child, every student, where they are at, at this moment in time, and allow their progress at the pace that they are are going, you know, are able to go. Now, of course, though... Um, Do you want to juice that a little bit with, uh, you know, well, you could enter this competition or you could um, take this audition or um, but that can backfire if you uh, if you give that to the wrong student at the wrong time, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, so you have to ease them along. And and it's just sort of a constant um, question of of what is the thing that is going to motivate the student and not cause them to just want to give up. Mm-hmm. You know, if you if you set them up for a competition that's way way over their head or something, that can make them want to quit. Yeah. Um so, you know, it's important to to match your expectations with with what you perceive them to be able to do and also to go with their own, you know, if if they're on fire to do the competition. Well, for sure. Yes, do it. Um and you can have other kinds of competitions, though, that instead of pitting, I think the best kinds are the ones that don't pit student against student. Mm. <laughs> so, you know, it can be a competition, you know, you have practiced 30 days in a row. Can you get to 40? Can you get to 50? Can we do a whole entire year I had a student once do 500 days of practice without missing a day. Wow. And for her, the very the very snowballing effect of all these days of practice was the motivation she needed right. to keep it going, you know and so that was the right thing for her. Um, I've had you know people can get motivated over an orchestra audition, you know getting into an orchestra. I know I personally that wasn't a motivation. For me, when I was a child, I wanted to get into the big youth orchestra in town. You know, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um,
1: yeah. So is that that and the teacher has to be sensitive to the needs of those individual students, right? And and not sort of prescribe one path for for every student. Is that is that possible when somebody has a large studio, and you know, it's easier to kind of just enroll all the students in. Whatever local competition is coming up, I mean, have you seen teachers mm-hmm. do that sensitively and 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 individually for each of their students? I feel like
0: um I feel like I have seen that happen, you know, and there are other things like the certificate of merit there's a mm-hmm. certificate of merit thing around here um you know, and just sort of allowing the students you know not forcing everybody to do it, although sometimes <laughs> you know, I'm very like, if then about this, but um, it seems like you really do have to be pretty individual. You can't, you can't subscribe the same thing for every single student. I don't think. Yeah. And expect it to work. Yeah. For every student. And, and and another thing that I feel is important is to make it really clear to a student like that. I don't like you less because you're in book one and your sister's in book two, Mm -hmm. or I don't think you're less of a player either. I just, you know, you play the thing that you are playing right now to the best of your ability, and I, as your teacher, admire that. I'm happy with that. You have
1: achieved something great. Yeah. Tell talk to us more about siblings. What would you ever? I mean, you you teach siblings. Do you know of any I teachers do. who prefer not to teach siblings? Who maybe you know work with the parents to find another teacher for the for the for the the brother or sister. What have you seen in that realm? Um, You know, um,
0: no, you know, at this point, yeah, I've got several siblings. And, um, you know, I, I have some personal experience with this. My parents felt it was really important for my sister and I to, to play different instruments and do different things. I was sort of disallowed from playing piano for a while. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it was sort of like, it almost made it worse. Oh, (laughs) to to try to control that. Um, I think you sort of have to let each child explore everything they want to explore. And you can't say like, well, I'm sorry, but the violin is in the realm of your sister. You're not allowed to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, or, um, or you're not, you're, you're younger, you're not allowed to get ahead of your older sibling. Um, You know, I think you have to, I I do sometimes put them in different books, (laughs) you know, um, that will achieve the same thing. Um, But I think you have to still really, really, it takes some effort, but allow them to progress at their own pace and do their own exploration of things. And if, if, if one decides, well, I think I'd like to play viola, or I think I'd rather do piano. Fine, but I don't know if the parent or the teacher. I, I really like things to be guided by the student, um,
1: the student's own motivation. Yeah, yeah. Have you have you ever seen students who? who work really well together as siblings, you know, who have formed maybe
0: I you know, I really have. I've got a couple of oh. them right now and they're so young. They're only like 8 and 5 or some 6 and 8 and 6. And you know, the the older one started a couple years before the younger one and they love it when I give them duets. Oh. And they'll work on it themselves and the older one will kind of teach the younger one stuff wow. and um they just it's great. And, and I just absolutely love to see it because I feel like if people can hold hands and play together, that's what we're doing this for. <laughs> you know, we're not doing this. We're not playing music to win a competition. We really, that's not the end purpose of music. The purpose of music is to bring us together. I for students, for everybody to do this, um, <laughs> the better. I love that.
1: Absolutely.
0: Yeah. So I mean, that's the whole idea with the Suzuki group class, right? You know, mm. we're playing together. Um, now, <laughs> you will get the parents going like, well, wasn't she in book three? And wasn't she, you know? And <laughs> yes, I really, um, I, it's just life, I guess. Um, and it that can be, I have to admit, I guess it can be motivating to be like, I'm almost at book four. Wow. You know? Yeah.
1: But, but keeping but that balance, time, I right. I hope we
0: all can can keep it in perspective for our kids. Yeah, You know, when they say that, say, well, great. Let's get into book four. But remember, play the thing you're doing right now and grandma will love it. Right. Or, you know, try to get in some kind of, at least now and then, get into some comp- like context where you're playing for a nursing home and you point out to the children. You don't just do it, but you point out to them what you're doing. You've made these people happy. Yeah they don't remember anything. They can sing jingle bells. Yeah. They still remember those words because you reminded them. You came here and you played for them. And it's a beautiful thing that you just gave them. You're six years old. You played jingle bells for them and made their day. Yeah. You know, that's more important than I'm in the third song on book two and Sally's in the first. Right. No. <laughs> that is not the most important thing. Every Maybe everybody thinks it, but we all have to, you know, we teachers and adults have to be the be the adults in the room to point out the things that are really important about what we're trying to do.
1: Love it. Absolutely. Wait, I, I'm thinking to my own children's teachers, they've done a really great job of walking that line between saying, Good. you know, you, you're doing just beautifully right where you are. And yet always gently sort of providing examples in the studio of someone who might be inspiring inspiring you know, and motivating for them to continue to, to move forward. And it is, it's a, that's a fine line, but great teachers do it really well. Yeah. Yeah. What other techniques have you used in your, in your studio to foster community over competition? Hmm.
0: Well, you know, there is the pairing of people with duets, (laughs) (laughs) you know, it's, um, performing, um, Pairing duets, you know, just trying to keep the focus on the music. Uh-huh. Um, but you know, I think another thing is to just make sure to give them that affirmation that they do need, you know, when they accomplish something. To and it has to be real. When you praise a student, it, it can't be just "Hey, great job!" You know, it's, you know, you have worked all summer long on your spiccato and look at it now. Do you remember where you were? And now look at your bow Bow is bouncing and it's even. And you really, really, I'm so proud of what you've done. I think it helps to get that affirmation from your teacher um, so that you're not looking for it, you know, by being better than Sally (laughs) or, you know, just to, to, to make sure that you're um, you're noting, remember how that was impossible for you. And now, it's easy for you. Yeah. This thing that you think is impossible right now is going to be that easy in six months. Um, you know, just to make sure that those kind of goals are there. Yeah. So as a teacher, you know, I got started teaching maybe thirty years ago, and I have my ways of doing things. And, and you know, um, technology certainly has evolved, and um, and I use my computer for a lot of things, but. Um, tell me a little bit about Duet Partner because I'm really interested in like what kinds of things, you know, could be all brought
1: together into one um, platform, yeah. if you will. and that's exactly the idea behind Duet is that it, we're bringing all of a music teacher's digital needs into one platform. And I love that we're talking about it on this episode because we are talking about Duet Partners <laughs> working together, <Right. laughs> you know, literal Duet Partners yes. And working together, Um, and that's of course where the inspiration for the new name came from. We were music teachers' helper, which is also a very descriptive name of what we do. But I think duet partner adds that sort of collaborative um, uh, musical sensibility to it—a little bit of a a little bit of a romantic, you know. Aspirational quality to it is that we do. Were you thinking of Carl? Were you thinking of your (laughs) young duet (laughs) partner? (laughs) Duet partner. Yeah. Well, yes. On the very best of days, we we really were in sync, and we did very well together. So we really lifted each other up, and that's that's the idea behind duet partner. Yeah, we we want to be the digital partner for music teachers, and you know, I totally understand that somebody like you started your studio thirty years ago. You know, we don't want to disrupt any any good strategies and systems that you have in place. But I think for a lot of students, uh, for a lot of teachers now coming into the industry, you know, they've grown up with technology, they've grown up with SaaS companies, software as a service companies, everything from, you know, Google to, to, um, to products that they've used in, in school, um, really serving them well. And, and I think that, um, that there's a very natural adoption for some younger teachers who are just coming on the market. One thing that I've heard from a lot of teachers is that, that it's very hard to get started as a teacher because it's isolating. Um, You're not quite sure what the best tools are for you. There's lots of advice out there. And so we hope to be a platform that new teachers can come to and just find all of their accounting, all of their scheduling, all of their communications, all of their web hosting, all of their online video, online teaching needs, all of the digital tools that they need to do all of that in one place. Well, your 20 students are very lucky to have you, and the violinist community has been so lucky to have your perspective as well. Uh, tell us about a teacher that was very meaningful to you. I know you talked to us about your your childhood teachers earlier, and you're yeah. welcome to talk more about them, but... Um, You know, you obviously went to some very prestigious schools. Are there there others that uh, had a a big influence on you as a person and as a musician that you'd like to share with us? Yeah,
0: you know, I would go back to Jim and Jackie Maurer. (laughs) It's so fun. You know, I had them at that young age, but then I went off and then I came back and, you know, they sort of taught me how to teach. It's been sort of a, I, I feel like also in studying Suzuki pedagogy, it's almost like studying a form of parenthood. Totally. It almost felt like a mentorship in that. And it was perfect because I was pregnant when I was first doing my Suzuki pedagogy (laughs) with my first child. So, you know, to me, that was meaningful. But certainly, I had some wonderful teachers um, at Northwestern University, uh, Gerardo Ribeiro, just watching him play was amazing. He was sort of a child prodigy and um, and he pushed, he pushed hard, you know, and um, he's like, oh, you're going to do a sophomore recital. I'm like, wait a minute. Don't people only do junior recital, (laughs) you know? (laughs) So um, I really learned a lot of technique there. And then at Indiana University, I was studying journalism, but I took lessons and my teacher, Henrik Kowalski was wonderful. I still remember in his kind of Polish accent, you know, he just wanted more, you know, and he said, if you have a lemon, would you squeeze the last bit of juice out of the lemon or would you just throw it away, you know? And I said, oh, I, I, I guess I would use, go do it, you know? And I kind of, <laughs> after having a lot of technical, really specific stuff, I kind of needed somebody to just be like really musical and go for it and, you know, what that kind of mean? thing. What did he mean? I don't
1: understand.
0: Well, that's the whole point, right? He meant that I needed to to give more. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I needed like, don't don't, I don't was waste holding the last back, like like come on um you know you're 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 not bringing it basically got it um uh, more yeah and um, that's kind of exactly what I needed at that stage where you know you do all your scales and you know and everything is pretty cerebral sounding and uh, you know you need to draw on something something more so yeah I was lucky to have a lot of wonderful teachers along the way yeah
1: well thanks so much for sharing all of that with us Lori. you've you're a fantastic leader in the industry and we're grateful that you spent the time with us today to learn more about how duet can be your digital partner in managing your music studio visit duetpartner.com and don't forget to rate this podcast on apple and spotify we give monthly prizes to those who take the time to rate us on those platforms. Thanks.